0: all from whatever book of the bible we are we are working through chapter at a time and we take some time to revisit our vision as a church our mission as a church what we do and why we do it and so i think just even in fact in light of just all that's happened in the last few years it's really important for us to stay focused to remember what we're doing and what it is that god has called us to do i think we need a fresh reminder of our purpose as a church why do we exist what is our goals? What are we shooting for? How do we select what our priorities should be as a church? And so over the course of the next several Sundays, we're going to talk about those very things. We're going to talk about why, why the church, why community, why God and the gospel are at the center of our church. Why do we do the stuff we do on Sundays? Why groups of three? How do we go, grow and go and all that stuff? Basically, what we're going to be doing is picking apart our, our vision statement, which says that we exist to glorify God By building a community of spirit-filled disciples living on gospel mission. That is what we're about. As, As we've spent time in God's word, whether it's Genesis, seems like all the way through to Revelation, we find something that is either about the gospel or about the community or about mission. And so this vision statement kind of fills that out. We exist to glorify God by building a community, a people that live together in community in some way, that are filled with the Spirit who have a mission of making disciples. We want to be filled with the Spirit and make disciples together. And we break that down sometimes into three words that make it simple and easier to understand, which is just simply gospel, community, community mission. mission. That's just easier to remember. And it's intentionally designed this way because the gospel is the primary and most important thing. And when we talk about the gospel, we're not just talking about Jesus died for my sins, although that's true, that's the micro version of the gospel. We talk about the the, the macro version of the gospel, which is then everything good that comes out of the gospel. You know, the fact that you're adopted as a child of God, you've been justified, um, you've been redeemed, all the things that flow out of the gospel. So we can talk about the gospel in, in three seconds or in hundreds of years to try to cover everything the gospel blesses with. And then from the gospel, we talk about how that informs our community. We're built around the gospel. And community exists really for the purpose of fulfilling a mission, a gospel mission, which is to go and grow. It is to help believers love Jesus more and put stinking sin to death more and to help lost people come to love Jesus too. So that's our our mission. So that's really why the church exists. And we talk also about how this fits right into the storyline of the Bible You read Genesis, you read all the way through Revelation, you're going to find God redeeming. So there's the gospel. God redeeming. Then he gathers people together in community. I mean, You see it already in just Genesis. So he redeems, then he gathers, and then part of his gathering is he sends them on a mission to be sanctified, to be changed, more like God and how God wants you to live, and then be a blessing to the nations. I mean, that's really the the theme of the Bible. So I think our vision statement, what we're trying to do is stay as closely tied to what God's word says from start to finish when it comes to his purpose for his people. So that's, I believe, is his purpose for us. Well, this morning, we're going to focus primarily on the phrase, for the glory of God. That's how it starts. We exist to glorify God by building. So we exist to glorify God. Now, we we had, uh, we had ribs last week, and I love ribs. But if you've had ribs, you know that you pay a lot of money for bones, right? I think it ticks me off. I'm like, man, it's all in the trash. There's very little to sink your teeth into. And I think sometimes when we talk about the glory of God, it kind of feels that way. It's like, what does that really mean, the glory of God? Like, what do I sink my teeth into? What's there that really helps me to understand what the glory of God really is? And so, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to take you to two passages. We're going to talk about what the glory of God is, and then we're going to connect it to the local church. We're going to talk about how does that impact us as a church this morning. Does that make sense? Alright, so first I'm going to do two, two slides with verses, then I'll have you open your Bibles to Ephesians. We're going to do things a little different than usual. Usually we read the passage of Scripture first, and then dive in. A little different this morning. I'm going to take you to two places, and then we're going to open our Bibles together. So, place number one. You want to know what the glory of God is all about. So, there's a A story that takes place, an event that takes place in Isaiah's life that's recorded in the book of Isaiah. And maybe you're familiar with this particular story, but it says this It says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. So we got community going on, right? He's gathering people together. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called, so first people are gathered. Here he's saying, everyone who is called, God is saying, by my name, whom I created, so he's created you. So you've been gathered, called, and created for what purpose? My glory. So every human being is created for God's glory. You, this morning, have been gathered, called, and created for the glory of God. So that's a—I think that's a pretty clear statement, right? I mean, it's not a whole lot to argue about in this. There's a purpose here. For the glory of God, you exist. And then another verse. There's many I could take you to. I'm just going to take you to 1 Corinthians 10.31, where it simply says this. So whether you eat or drink or (laughs) whatever— all-encompassing. Everything you do, do it for what purpose? For the glory of God. So we can conclude from these two verses very simply that who you are is for the glory of God, and what you do is for the glory of God. So everything about you, who you are, and what you do is meant for an end goal of the glory of God. So over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore how the glory of God connects to what we do as a church and to our mission as a church. But for today, we got to define this thing called the glory of God. And so we know we exist, you exist, everything you do is supposed to be for the glory of God. So what does it mean that we exist then for the glory of God? What does that mean to us? That's why we exist. Is hope we proved that to you. Now it's what does that mean for us as a church family? Well, the same, as we look into this this morning, I want to jump into Isaiah. There's a third verse here in Isaiah that I think helps us to see what the glory of God really is. This this gives us a definition. So we all should live for the glory of God. Now, what does it mean to live for the glory of God? What is the glory of God? So Isaiah 6, chapter 1, or chapter 6, verse 1, is another passage that you probably are more familiar with. And it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. That kind of blows our typical picture of a hallmark angel, does it not? Six wings are going at it. And the two angels call to one another. So you've you got a picture. you got an angel over here. And it's calling to the other angel. I'm, I'm guessing the throne is in the middle. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I guess I should be flapping my wings. And then the other one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And back and forth they go. Now what's interesting about this holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, is that at first reading, it doesn't really make sense. You would expect to read, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his holiness. Right? So what's up with the change in wording? Why does he transition, why do the angels transition to glory instead of holy? Why do they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Well, I think there's some good reasons why. I think there's a connection between his holiness and his glory. There's a connection between God's holiness and God's glory. So when God tells us here that he is holy, he's telling us way more than he's just separated. Maybe you've heard that, like to be holy means to be separated or set apart, and he is. But it means so much more than that. It means so much more than him just being morally upright or righteous. He's telling us That God is completely unique. there, There is no one like God. No one even comes close to what he's like. He is one of a kind. He is a limited edition. There is no one like him or anyone who compares to him in any way. He has no competition and he has no equal. That's what it means when we say that God is holy, holy. Holy. Uh, Maybe for the kids in here, this is a helpful way to maybe think about it. If he were to enter a science fair, God would win hands down. He would take best in show at any competition. God would have every Super Bowl ring, Stanley Cup, and World Series pennant. And he would also be the MVP of all of them. His record would be infinity and O. (laughs) Infinity wins, no losses. No one would ever score against him. He'd be the valedictorian. He's the man of the year. No one even comes close because he is completely infinite in power. God is infinite in power. He is self-sustaining, right? We love to talk about being self-sustaining, don't we, these days? Listen, God is self-sustaining. He needs nothing, and he needs no one. And he never needs to be recharged or runs out of gas, He keeps going. He is infinite in knowledge. He's not learning new things. He's not studying new things. He doesn't have to recall something to mind. Everything of all knowledge is always in his mind, functioning 100% all the time. So he's never remembering anything or recalling something. It's there in his head all the time. He knows the beginning from the end. He is infinite in time. He's infinite in space. He creates with a word and sustains the existence of everything with his word. He has no bounds. He has no limits. He is infinitely complete and beautiful. All encompassing perfection and everything you could ever, ever want or desire is found in him. There's no one like God. Or to put it in short, he is holy, holy, holy. No one compares. So when the seraphim declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, what they're saying is that his glory is when his supreme uniqueness is put on display. It's when his uniqueness is seen. In other words, his glory is his holiness made manifest— His glory is his one-of-a-kindness put on display so we can see it. It's revealed to us. So if I were an amazing cook, let's just say, and the angels were to say, Holy, holy is Matt the cook. The whole kitchen is full of his cooking. You would say, okay, so if I want to find out just how holy Matt is, how set apart, how unique he is as a cook, I got to go to the kitchen and taste is cooking. That's what it is in this. It's, it's God is infinitely unique. He's holy, holy, holy. And it's manifest. You see it in the earth, in creation. You see it in people. You see it in everything God does. You see it in his word. So it's made manifest. When it's made manifest, we go, oh, that's glorious. His holiness is revealed. And we call it his glory. So in this case, as opposed to mine, God is holy and supremely unique in every way and in everything in the earth. And it's all meant to show off who he is. So when we say Christchurch exists to glorify God, what we are saying is that we exist to show off and reveal how great he is. That's why we exist. We want the world to see how great God is Everything we do and say has its ultimate aim at putting on display his value and his worth and to let everyone know there's no one like our God. None. No competition. That is the mission of our church. So that trickles down into all kinds of stuff that we do. So we sing songs that attempt to articulate the supreme greatness of God. We sing God-centered songs, not man-centered songs. I mean, you've heard some of those. I've heard plenty Christian songs that really are more about man than about God. So we attempt to avoid those and sing about God. When sermons are preached, the goal that I have, that Tyler and Jordan have, is to raise your affections for God and for his word by putting on display who God is. Have you noticed that? The sermons are not (laughs) man-centered. They're going to be about God. You're going to learn something about God and who God is and what he's done, and and we're going to raise him up in the stories of the Bible. When we sorted through curriculum for Christ kids, picking which curriculums to use and which ones not to use, we found the ones that instead of saying, dare to be a Daniel, or face your giants like David, we found ones that would say, God reigns over the king, the lion, and the giant. You get it? Like, that's what we're going for. So we leave here more aware of God, because that's the point of the church, that he would reign. This is why we speak Jesus to one another. So if you have a, a, have a hurt or a problem or a decision to make or a sorrow, rather than tell each other, well, here's what I did when I had that problem, or here's what they did when they had that problem, we want to connect that somehow to something about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing, or what he will do. Because you need more Jesus. We want him to be glorified, not what I did in the past or what someone else did in the past. We want to tell you what Jesus is doing so that you leave more aware of how great he is and how he works in your life. So it trickles down. We could, I could spend more time. It trickles down into what we do and, and the things that we decide to do or not do when we're saying we want God to be glorified. All right. So with that under our belt, can you turn to Ephesians 3 with me? Turn to Ephesians 3. So the glory of God is putting God's uniqueness on display. It's exalting him to the place that he belongs so people can see him. And the reason I'm going to Ephesians 3, and there's plenty of places we could go. If you look at Ephesians 3, go all the way down to verse 21. And I'll show you why we're here this morning. Ephesians 3, verse 21 says, when you're there, say there there? Good, you guys are fast. All right. So Ephesians 3 verse 21 says this, to him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church. So in the church, God is to be presented in such a way that you see him as infinitely valuable. He's to be talked about and to be the center of everything we do in such a way that people go, wow, there is no one like God. That's, that's what that verse is saying. But it's going to tell us here how that happens. Like, let, we got to get down into like, the practicals. Okay, so how does that happen? So the, the verse is very clear. To him be glory in the church. This is the end of a prayer that Paul prays. And so we're going to read the prayer, and we're going to put to him be glory in the church, in its context of the prayer, and then talk about how. How does Paul see us being glory to God as a church, according to this prayer? Okay, so the prayer goes all the way back, starts in verse 12. Nope, 14, sorry, verse 14. So I'm going to read this to you. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. How does it keep going? Which surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So in this prayer are the ingredients for how we as a church can glorify God. You want to know what it is? Because I do. If that's my ultimate aim in life, if that's it, if, if everything has that as the goal, glorify God. I want to bring glory to God. If that's the goal of the church, we want to bring glory to God. And this prayer has those ingredients, tells us how to do it. I want to know what it is. So we're going to look at it. The first thing that it is, is this. We need His powerful presence. We need His powerful presence. Another way to put it, according to our vision statement, is we need to be spirit-filled. We need to be spirit-filled. And what I'm going to do is walk backwards through the prayer. So I'm going to start with verse... 21, to him be glory in the church and work our way backwards through the prayer to see how do we bring glory to God in the church. And the first way I'm saying is this, we need his presence. So look back at what he says just before this. So look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church. So his power has to be work at work within us if we are going to bring him glory in the church. Does that make sense? Is that you're following the train of thought? Just all I'm doing is reading two sentences back to back, <laughs> right? We need power. We need his power, and his power has to be work where? Within us. His power has got to be work within us. Now, what's beautiful about this prayer is there's three more times in this prayer. That's why I know that I'm not just pulling this one verse out. There's three more times in this prayer where he says almost the same thing. So look at verse 16. Verse 16, he says, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Do you see that? So if you, I don't know if you circle in your Bible, mind that these are all circled. So verse 20, it's according to his power that's worked within us. Verse 16, we need to be strengthened with power through his spirit in my inner being, in your inner being. Then look at verse 17. Verse 17, it says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So now I've got Christ dwelling in my heart. And look at verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So you see the four times this is said in here? You're tracking? This must be important. It's repeated four times in different ways that we need his power at work within us. We need the Holy Spirit at work in our inner being. We need Christ to dwell in our hearts and we need the fullness of God to fill us. If you notice, in those four, you've got the Father, you've got the Son, and who's the other guy? Holy Spirit. Yeah, so the Trinity's there. So what he's saying is, if you're going to glorify God, you need God's power at working in you. And to get God's power to work in you, you need to be filled with the Trinity. You need God in you. You need him to fill you. He needs to dwell in you. That's the only way that you are going to have his power at work within you. So what the church needs, if I'm reading this right, what the church needs, what we need in order for to him be glory in the church to happen is for God's power to be at work within us. That's what we need. And so how do we get his power to be at work within us? Well, it seems that we need more Father, Son and Holy Spirit working in our inner being, dwelling in our hearts, filling us with the fullness of God. Do you want—listen, church family, do we want more of the Trinity filling us? Yeah, I mean, do you? I mean, this is, this is huge. I mean, this is the difference between death and life, between a church that's alive and a church that's dying it's a church that says, we want more of God in us, individually and as a church. We want his presence. We want his power at work within us. We want him dwelling in us. Do you want more of his Holy Spirit in your inner being this morning? And I know if you've been born again, you want that. Everything in you craves for that. You want more of the Spirit's power, more of the Spirit's life, more of the Spirit's help. And listen, there are more nooks and crannies in your inner being for the spirit to fill and explore and dominate than he currently is. There's more. And I think sometimes due to just busyness of life and all kinds of other probably lacking faith reasons, we don't think that way. We don't think, I need to get up this morning and I want to be filled with more of God. I want to be filled with more of Christ. I want to be filled with more of the spirit. And I think sometimes we can forget that. So for the kids, and maybe for us too, I've got a little illustration this morning. So I can argue that that jar is full. It is, isn't it? It's full of what? Full of air. It's full of dihydrogen oxide. Is that the chemical? Isn't that the, where's the smart people? So it's full, right? Right? And you say, yeah, it's full. And I say, okay, but it's not. It's not full, right? Because I can put more in it. So it's not just filled with air. Like <laughs> hey, dihydrogen oxide is water. <laughs> I'm standing here going, that didn't sound right. Sorry. <laughs> huh? Water vapor, in it, so water vapor? That's true. That's true. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so we could argue that now it's full, right? It's full. It's full of all these little, full of all these little gems, right? So it's still full. So, so at times in my life, Christian, I can think I'm full, but really I'm not. And so I, I can get more of God filling me and I can say I'm full. But is this full? No. Some of you guys already know this little illustration thing from when you were kids. So it's not full. I can put more in it. I don't know how much more I can put in it, but... I didn't try this at home. Hope there's no chemical reaction between these rocks and salt. Because <laughs> that would be really bad. Things starts like, rupturing, spewing stuff all over. Oh, that would make it fun. Right? Then it would be like, yeah. Maybe that would help the illustration, I don't know. So there, yeah, I'm not gonna but you get the point. Right? So you're you know, we want to be filled with God and we think, okay, you know, I was, and then I was a little more, and well now I'm more filled. So now I'm filled. Is it filled? No, it's not filled. Because there's still room, right? There's still room. I can put water in it. Now, if I filled it to the top, which I'm not going to, I could say it's filled. And I'm sure that over time, the water will evaporate. Bad illustration, because the Holy Spirit does not evaporate in any of us. The point is, I don't want us as a church or any of us as individuals to think We're filled when we just have air in us. A little Holy Spirit. Some Holy Spirit. I don't want us to be satisfied when the rocks are in there. I don't want to be satisfied when the salt is in there. I want us to live as if every day you are on an adventure to get more of God in you. To be filled more with him. To have him take over your inner being in such a way that there is power in your life. That's the aim. So I, I trust we're all on the same page And we don't want to be satisfied. We don't want to be stagnant in our current experience of being filled with the Trinity. But that we want more. And we want more of his power. And that our reason, if I'm following the text correctly, is because we want God to get glory. And I think that's where, sorry, side note, not in my notes. I think it's where many churches that believe in the gifts of the Spirit like we do go wrong. Because we start wanting the gifts of the Spirit just because it's powerful and cool. And exciting. And exciting. But the end has to be for the glory of God. So I want more of his spirit and more of his power so the world and you, my friends, will see God as glorious as he really is by how I live my life, by how filled I am with his spirit and by how much power I have. So I think that's what's going on here in this story. We want Trinitarian power and dwelling in us. And at the heart of this prayer, the very heart of it, he tells us how to get this power. How do we get this power? So let's see if we can discover together, how do we get this power? We're back, backing our way up through the verses. You want the power. How do I get the power? How do I get more of Christ in me, more of the Father in me, more of the Spirit in me, so I'll have this power? So we've got to start reading again. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in... What's the word? Love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you see the word that there? That, that is important. It's connecting that you may be filled. So what do you have to know? What do you have to believe in order to have, in order to be filled with all the fullness of God? What do you got to know? Say it louder, Danielle. Love. You've got to know the love of Christ. This is not where I expected this story to go this morning, to be honest. As I was studying this passage this week going, okay, help me understand this glory of God thing. And I'm reading the prayer and I'm studying the prayer. I'm memorizing the prayer, looking over the prayer. And I'm going, wait a minute. If I'm reading this right, what I need is to know the love of God in order to be filled with the Trinity. So I'll have his power. So I'll bring him glory. So at the top of this little pyramid is my and your knowing the love of God. You see see that in the passage. Like, I'm I'm making this up. Like, that's that's what we're going for. You've got to know the love of God. So in verse 17, Paul is praying that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And then in verse 19, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. So therefore, I'm concluding... It is an increasing understanding and believing in the love of Christ for you that produces greater fillings with God. You see it? I don't know, if this is new. It was kind of new for me as I pieced this together this week. I had to wrap my brain around it a couple of times. But that's what he's saying. You've got to know the love of Christ if you are going to be filled with the fullness of God so that you have power so you'll bring him glory. So there's this direct link or connection between having the power of the Spirit in your inner being and knowing the love of Christ. There's a link between Christ dwelling in your heart and being rooted and grounded in Christ's love. There's a link between being filled with the fullness of God and comprehending Christ's love for you. So now let's kind of follow the train of thought here. In order for to him be glory in the church to happen, the Trinity must fill us and dwell in us, and he fills us and dwells in us in an ever-increasing way as we increase in our understanding and experience of his love. It was a long sentence. <laughs> Put it shorter. We need to know the love of God, so we'll be filled with, the, with God, so we'll have the power of God, so we'll glorify God. How's that? Simpler? I want to know the love of God, so I'll be filled with God, so I'll have the power of God, so I can glorify God. That's where this, this passage leads us this morning. So now we're at the application part. You have to know the love of God. So where do we go to learn about the love of God? We go to the cross. We go to the cross. And Paul's prayer comes after two and a half chapters of just gospel preaching. What is the gospel all about? So I'm going to take you to one little part of it. I'm going to try to convince you that God loves you more than you think. And then we're going to talk about how to cultivate a greater love for the love of God and a greater belief in the love of God. So let's, let's turn over to one, maybe one page for you. Turn over to chapter 2 of Ephesians. This is the second thing we need, or maybe a building block of what we need. We need his gospel love. We need God's gospel love. So, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm just going to read this to you, read it to you slowly, maybe familiar. I'm trying to think about God's love in this. Chapter 2, verse 1 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. In which, you, in which you once walked. <clears throat> so you, you were dead, my friends. I was dead. We were dead in our sins. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. And the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I and mean, that just paints a pretty gruesome picture of us, does it not? We were dead in our sins, and then we acted like dead people. We behaved like people who are dead by pursuing dead things that don't bring life. And then, verse 4, it says this, but God, Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So what undergirds God's mercy? His love. His love supports his mercy. His love causes him to show mercy. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. And when did he love us? Not when we were lovable. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what does he do? He makes us alive together with Christ. Now, there's three phrases here we're going to grab a hold of this morning. The first is that one. He has made you alive. alive. You're alive. You're alive. You're alive. You've been alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And not only you were alive, but he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So in his great love for you, he has done three things. He has made you alive when you were dead. He raises you up and he seats you in heaven. And all of that is because He loves you. And all three of those are linked to you being unified to Christ. Do you see the phrase at the end of each one? I know we're getting a little heady here, but you got to get this to get the love of Christ. (laughs) He's made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him. So in love, you have been united to Christ so that when he was raised, you were raised. And when he was seated in heaven, you, through union with him, was seated with him also in heaven. You have been united to him. And this is all, it's anchored in his love. When it says, because of his great love with which he loved us, that word great is the word for many, much, large. So we could read, because of the many love with which he loved us. Because of the much love, because of the large love with which he loved us, he's made you alive. It's because of his love that he's raised you up. It's because of his love that he has seated you with Christ. It's because of his much large love. (laughs) It's what it's going after. So God's much large love is seen in what he has done for you with Christ, what he did for you in Christ. His great love has made you alive. It has raised you He has seated you with the Father because of his great love for you. God has a great, large love for you. And it was so large that he activated it and showed it to you by making you alive when you were dead and raising you up and seating you in heaven. This past week, Tyler texted me this verse from John 15. You may be familiar with this verse. Jesus says this, and if you think about it, it is mind-blowing. Jesus says, "As the Father has loved me, so I so have I loved you. Abide in my love." The same way the Father loves Jesus, Jesus loves you. How does the Father love Jesus? A little bit? A lot of it? How about eternally? How about without end? How about abundantly? How about infinitely? How about passionately? The same love that the Father loves the Son, the Son loves you. That's how loved you are, and Jesus tells us to abide in his love. And if you take verse 9—it's not going to be projected—but verse 8— Right before it just says this, by this is my Father glorified (laughs) that you bear much fruit. And then he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. In other words, you're going to bear fruit, you're going to glorify the Father. Know that I love you as much as the Father loves me. That's how much God the Father loves you. That's how much Jesus loves you. That's how much the Spirit loves you. So listen to me. No matter how great you think of his love for you, it's not great enough. Do you hear that? No matter how high or wide you comprehend his love to be for you, you're not even close. No matter how long or deep you believe his love to be for you, it is far lacking. No matter how large you think his love for you is, your estimation is way short. You, you can't estimate it. You're wrong. It's as ro- it, is, it is as off and wrong as me saying it's one mile from here to Seattle, Washington. Right? I'm off by what? 2,800 miles. That's how off we are if we think our estimation of God's love for us is even close to being accurate. And That is why he says in verse 19 that we should know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In other words, it transcends or exceeds your understanding. It can't be valued or weighed or measured. There's no scale great enough to weigh God's love for you. There is no tape measure long enough to measure God's love for you. You cannot entertain too grand of thoughts about his love. You can't praise his love too much or believe it too much or enjoy it too much or value it too much. Listen, there will never be a time, never, 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 never be a time that you are entertaining grand grand thoughts about how much God loves you and God says, whoa, 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 that's too far. You've taken it to the extreme. You need to just bring it back a little bit. That will never happen. In fact, the opposite is what happens. You entertain the greatest thoughts you can about the love of God And God's going to be thinking, keep going. You're not even close. Oh, it's so much better and greater and longer than that. Keep going. Keep entertaining those thoughts. Keep believing it and believe more and believe you're still way, way, way short. God's love is so far beyond what we can fathom that surpasses our knowledge that we will never ever come even remotely close to having an accurate picture of how much he loves you this morning. I have a, another illustration, maybe may helpful or not. I have a friend who collects sea glass. And so he goes along the beaches and he collects little sea glass things. You guys know what those are, right? Little things in that jar, like little shiny. So he's on the beach and during one of his sea glass collection times, he finds a, a glass insulator. It was a pic- We're going to put a picture of it up there. A glass insulator. You, know, you guys have seen those if you've gone to where you see train tracks. It goes up on top of the pole, and the electrical line wraps around it and keeps running. It's a, it insulates the wood from the electricity. So that's a glass insulator. And so he finds this thing on the beach, and he, uh, he throws it in his duffel bag with all the other things and you know, zips it up and throws it over his shoulder and chucks it in the back of his truck and brings it home. He's like, oh, look at this thing. And he he puts it in the washing machine, or not by the washing machine, it sits on the floor for a while, then one day he cleans it up a little bit, then he puts it on a shelf in his house, like teetering off, so you can see the sun come through it, and he's like, whatever. Then one day he decides to snap a picture of it and put it on Instagram. He has an Instagram page for his sea glass collecting, right? So he puts this on there, and within five minutes, his Instagram completely blows up. I mean, his, in his estimation, this thing is just garbage, just a piece of glass, and he'll use it as a doorstop is what he was thinking he was going to do with it. So his Instagram blows up. I'll give you 500 bucks for that. Next guy, I'll give you 1000 Next guy, I'll give you 2000 He's like, whoa, I can get 2000 bucks for this thing. That's great. So then he gets some people saying, you know, don't sell this for $2,000. Like, who knows what this thing is, but obviously people want it. Then he gets a Text, I think it was or something on whatever Instagram is, from the National Insulator Association. There's a president of this thing, believe it or not, who says, Hey, that thing is really cool. And he's like, it could be worth, you know, it could be worth more than three or four thousand. He's like, Oh that's 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 cool. You know, if it's worth three or four thousand, that's great. You know, still thinking this thing is, you know, whatever. And so this guy's like, hey, well, you know, pack it up, seal it up, and send it to me, and I'll I'll look at it and see if I can. Find out how much it's really worth, if it's original and that kind of thing. So he sends it to this dude, and this dude gets back to him and says, hey, this is really is unique. And he goes, and it's worth more than 3000 but I can't give you more than that. So I know a guy in New Mexico who collects these things. He has thousands of them, and he's got lots of money. Maybe he'll offer you something for it. Well, he gets a phone call back from this guy. And he goes, hey, you know, I, I'm so sorry. You know, I thought maybe I'd get you three or $4,000 for it, but I, I didn't. I couldn't get you that for it. Instead, I got you... $45,000. So we got $45,000 for this glass insulator. Now, all along, his estimation was this thing is a doorstop. Had a chip out of it. It's useless. This thing is garbage. And then somebody came along saying hey, it might be worth something. Said, oh, wow, maybe it's worth $1,000 or $2,000. All along, do you see how far off he was in his estimation of how much this thing was worth? About $42,000 off in his estimation. Listen, you don't think that he was blown away. (laughs) He tells us the story and he's like, and so the guy's on the phone, like, sorry, I couldn't get you. I thought maybe I'd get you like 10 or 15,000. I'm sorry, but I got you 45,000. And he was like, what? (laughs) Imagine how blown away. Listen, that is how blown away we should be when we think we understand the love of God and it's actually that much greater. Do you understand? It is that much greater. If you think God loves me $1,000 worth, well, it's way more than $45,000 worth. You think he loves you $2,000 worth? It's a billion zillion dollars worth. We always will underestimate how great God's love is. You will always underestimate how high and wide and long and deep his love for you is. And it's seen clearly in the gospel, when Christ dies, so we have an objective place to look, but then it trickles into all of our lives. It is is very objective in that he tells us he loves us this way, and then he proves that he loves us this way. So listen, don't rob God of glory by downplaying his love for you. Listen, when we believe it's humble to think that God's love is small for us because of our sin— Or because we're unlovable, we're actually preventing you from having Christ dwell in your heart. Which then leads to him not getting glory. Do you understand that? Denial. Look, God can't love me that much. I mean, look what I've done. God can't love me. Look who I am. You're robbing God of glory. Because that's the very point. The very point is, you're not lovable. And yet he loves you so high and so wide and so long and so deep that you'll never be able to calculate it. It's mind-blowing how much God loves us. So the degree to which you and I, and us as a church family, believe that God's gospel love is great and large and high and wide and beyond human comprehension is directly linked to him dwelling in us, which is linked to how much power we have, which is linked to how much glory he gets. Do you see how important it is that we really believe God loves us? <laughs> how important it is that we say, I really do believe God loves me in an insane way, and I believe that I only see one one-hundredth of it. <laughs> and I believe that I don't even, I'm not even scratching the surface of how much he loves me, but I believe he loves me so much, I can't comprehend it. The more we embrace that, the more he dwells in us, and the more power we have, and then the more he gets Glory. So church, we need to keep pressing into the reality that God loves you in a crazy way, <laughs> that his love for you is unfathomable, that it's off the charts, that it's breathtaking. And I, and I love the way the prayer ends because it's, it's such great news. Look at verse 21, back in chapter 3, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. In other words, God's doing this thing. He's going to make sure that he gets glory throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever. Hopefully, I pray to our kids and to their kids and to their kids, and it's going to keep going. But I think the more that we believe he loves us and the more we can convince them of God's love, the more power there will be, and it will transcend from generation to generation to generation, forever and ever and ever. So church, here this is our assignment. Oh, it's such a good one. We need to spend much time this week, letting our sanctified imaginations somehow entertain the greatest thoughts we have ever had about the love of God. That's the assignment. It's how can we spend time together as families, groups of three, one anothering, helping each other to somehow expand our brains and our hearts and our knowledge and our experience of God's love for us to convince one another that his love is so high, so wide, so long, so deep that you'll never comprehend it. Never. Keep trying, but you won't. There's no end to trying. This is your until you die assignment. Explore, think about, pray about, search, talk to others, sing about the love of God in such a way that you find your soul going, I think he really loves me more than I ever anticipated. (laughs) So that he'll fill you with his presence, so his power will flow through you, so that he will receive glory in the church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. 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 So we're going to sing. I want to pray for us, and we're going to sing a song. Oh, Father, I, I pray that you would help us this, this fall, as we turn the corner into this fall, to have, a, to have a fresh encounter with you that raises our hearts and our minds to a belief and an experience of your love that exceeds anyone we've ever had before. God, if there's been times in our lives we've thought and really felt and knew, God loves me. God, I pray that our next experience of that would exceed that a hundredfold. I ask that you would help us, help us to know how to think about your love and how to enjoy your love and how to believe your love And how to talk to others about your love. I pray that you would blow us away as a church. I pray that there'd be so much power in our church that you would get glory and honor. Lord Jesus, it's so good to know that the very thing that you tell us to do, to to seek to understand, to grow in our belief that you love us is the very thing you want us to do and it produces praise to you in the end. It produces glory to you in the end. The the world, the church, us, will see how great you are, how infinitely unique you are the more that we believe you love us. And so do that, I pray. God, I pray against the enemy who wants to convince us that God's love is small, Or that God's love is for everyone else but us. Or that somehow God's love is dished out in proportion to how good we are. Or that some of us in the room are loved more than others. Oh God, I I pray you would bind those lies, take them far away from us, that we would have confidence this morning that your love is based in your character and your love is based in who you are and that your love is great and abounding, and without measure. And I pray that we would roll around in the goodness of that as a church. So come, Spirit, help us. Give us strength to comprehend how wonderful the love of Christ is, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.